Don't miss out on the latest news and events in your community. Visit StarLocalMedia.com today. Sign up for our newsletter and stay informed on all the latest stories affecting your neighborhood. And if you're a local business owner, let us help you reach your target audience with our effective advertising solutions. Visit StarLocalMedia.com and take the first step towards staying connected to your community. episode of the Star Local Media High School Sports Podcast. My name is Matt Welch, being joined by Devin Hassan and David Woolman. It is uh, just shy of 11 a.m. here on a Monday, and uh, guess what, guys? We're back. Yeah, it's been a, a, minute. A, it's been a hot yeah. minute. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and into we're in a brand new year and everything. But um, yeah. So uh, yeah, guys, has um, you know, when we uh, when we last convened, we were I guess the playoffs had uh, had just taken flight, you know, for five A and six A, and we're actually now right on down to the final week of the uh, of the season. We um we somehow made it to the finish line, which when you think of the road that it's taken <laughs> to get here, dating all the way back to the you know to springtime, and I mean just the the uncertainty that surrounded everything going into this season it is kind of impressive that we're actually going to get through this whole thing and we're going to crown state champions in every classification um so uh yeah as uh, as wild as this year's been there is the uh, the finish line is at last in sight so um you know we're here to uh i guess kind of close the book on the year that was for high school football at least in our coverage area you know we do not have any teams playing this week for state championships and whatnot but still uh, it's been a pretty memorable year obviously for reasons <laughs> far beyond just what happened on the field so just kind of wanted to use this episode just to kind of close the book and put a bow on what um just kind of what this year was for us with high school football um so we can again go on a number of different directions um i kind of just wanted to start you know we'll obviously get to you know talking about the pandemic and just kind of reflecting on its impact on um on just our seasons but um i mean what are we going to remember most from this season i mean obviously it's a pretty open-ended question pretty vague and not a lot of different directions to take this but um when you guys think back on just the uh, the year that was with 2020 high school football at least in our coverage area what's gonna what's gonna kind of jump out i guess not so much related to the pandemic yeah i mean I, there's a handful of of kind of stories mm-hmm. that that i'm gonna take away uh you know you look over in frisco mm-hmm. and which something we talked about in our in our preseason deal was what could we what could, uh, frisco liberty do yes. over there and um you know after going to one and 19 the last combined the last mm-hmm. two seasons not having made the playoffs since 2011 we kind of talked about them could they be a surprise team uh, at the time no one knew, knew about Keltrick luster quarterback <laughs> um they quickly found but, out though. but yeah <laughs> you know, it, it was a team it was a you know that's such a loaded the frisco <laughs> idea is so you know it's, it's just so loaded over there and um it's kind of hard to, to kind of pave your own path, uh, but Liberty's able to do it this year. You know, we mentioned Kiltrick Luster. You know, you had Jonathan Bone in the backfield, guys like Evan Stewart on the on the outside. Uh, they were an exciting team, mm-hmm. and um, sure enough, they do break that playoff drought that went back to 2011. And you kind of wonder what might have happened if, if Luster doesn't get hurt there at the end of the season. But you know, just a sophomore, uh, you know, he's going to be back. Evan Stewart's going to be back. Uh, it was just a fun team to watch, a fun team to, you know, to kind of to pay attention to this year. 
Because when you look at it, I wrote down Lester's numbers just because that is that was one of the most prominent early season storylines in our coverage area was just the sophomore who was just putting yeah. up these absurd video game-esque numbers out at Liberty. And, you know, his game, he'd only played six games on the season, you know, and he missed the, the, uh, the rest due to injury. But, I mean, at the time, I mean, he was good for right around 400 yards of offense <laughs> by himself. He was, I mean, he was, I think, top five in the area in both passing and rushing. And, I mean, 1,600 passing yards. Over 500 rushing yards, you know, 22 touchdowns, and again, I mean, seven and a half yards per carry, over almost 270 passing yards. It's just such a uh, such an impressive start to what you know what you hope is able to you know resume next season as one of the budding careers of uh, you know in Frisco ISD uh, in uh, football. And yeah, I mean it paid off and I mean again credit to to Will Glatch for being able to take the baton and then you know move from being a full-time participant at linebacker to now quarterbacking this team like he did last season and they were able to fall through get to the playoffs and yeah nice little feel-good story yeah that's Mm -hmm. you know kind of in uh, in line with one of the things that I'll take away is because uh, we all like the nice comeback story you know whether it was Liberty or like you know within my uh, my little coverage cluster with Plano West and on what they were able to accomplish. McKinney Boyd as well. Mm-hmm. David, a similar thing with you and Capel, with Capel being able to get back on uh, on the playoff track after missing out last season. But, um, you know, that uh, that Plano West team, just I mean, given that, I mean, I've, you know, covered Plano for, you know, for, you know, 12 years now, and everything that, you know, having covered that program through its, you know, through those dark days just a few years ago, that 34-game losing streak, <laughs> and for them to, you know, in just Tyler Sukup's second year as head coach, be able to string together a year like this where they went 6-5, and five, their, their combined win total from 2015 to 2019, basically everything post their um, the Soso Jamabo years um, when they uh, when they last made the playoffs, they won a total of five games over those. Uh, <laughs> For what those, I guess, what four or five seasons, and um, so for them to again win six this season and you know qualify for the playoffs, such a uh, such a nice step in the right direction for a program that was in such a tough spot just a few years ago. I will just kind of thinking back to you know some of the conversations that we had on the podcast during all this, as far as just kind of sizing up what to make of this and what it would take to get this program back on the right track. The one thing that always did give me pause was it's not like like the school just doesn't have. Of talented football players, if there's anything consistently fall back on, is that it's still the second largest high school enrollment wise in the state. It's I not mean, like they don't have a big pool to like pick for them. Yeah, no, it's over 5,500 kids, and yeah, again, like they said, there's there's great football players there. I'm just not sure how many of them were actually playing football, just yeah. given the state of the program. So to be able to then turn things in the right direction, like they were able to this year, you know, certainly a uh, you hope that it's a kind of a sign of things to come for Plano West potentially now becoming a just reasserting itself more consistently as a uh, as a presence in the playoff mix the way that they were able to do so this year and in some ways McKinney Boyd's story might have been even wilder when you consider the note that Boyd started the season on you know when they I mean with their offense and just the rut that they were in to start off the year um, those first three games and just being not able to muster a whole lot I mean I think they had something like was like 17 or 18 points total (laughs) in um through those first three weeks so then they have to you know kind of shuffle the pieces around a bit on offense and then they're able to piece together something that's able to at least make them uh you know that's at least able to complement what was an airtight defense from the uh from the get-go and then they were able to kind of catch fire in district play and wind up qualifying for the playoffs for the first time and i believe 2015 might have been their last appearance i don't have the number in front of me but again strong note for joe mcbride and his crew and just his second year at the helm um you know like i said david you know you had something with uh, with capel you know a team that you know a feeling that's not all too common for capel last season you know yeah. being left out of the playoff mix that was that first time 
time since 2011 that they missed out. And then this year, much more, you know, the, uh, the caliber of Capel football that we're used to seeing. And it was uh, it's definitely like it's some trying times during this season, too, for no Capel. I mean, at, during the summer, like when all the other teams were allowed to, you know, hold, hold imports and practices because they were in Denton County. Capel was the only team in 66A that couldn't practice yeah, together. Yeah, because they fall in Dallas County. Yeah. It was a county-wide shutdown. Yeah, so. so, I mean, they're they're having to do stuff virtually. They're having to work out on their own. Mm-hmm. And then during the season, um, they actually have to – they can't even practice for a wee, whole week for because real? their school was shut down because, like, uh, some positive COVID tests at their school. So they couldn't even practice together. And then – and then, obviously, we kind of get a little bit worried, uh, like, you know, in that week right there because they only have one day to practice for Louisville, and then Louisville, you know, beats them pretty pretty handedly. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of worried, hey, you know, like, you know, is Capel going to make the playoffs? Are we not sure? You know, like, you know, how is this – are they going to be able to grab that luster that they had early in the season right there? And then what last two weeks of the season – beat Plano East, yep. and then they beat Flower Mound. Pretty convincing victory against Flower Mound, especially the way that they played in the second half. And then that leads us to the playoff game against Denton Geyer. Yeah. So they gave Geyer a good one for a little bit. They gave him, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a game that they could have just easily, you know, threw in the towel in the first first half. They're down 24-3 to in that game. And obviously you're thinking, it's like, hey, this is going to be a long day. How am I going to write my story on this? Try to provide a positive, you know, angle right here. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they come back. Yeah. Like, you know, like K.J. Wiggins has a touchdown. Anthony Wiggins, Anthony Black has a big, you know, reception to the one-yard line with less than a uh, minute left in the first half to, you know, bring him with a one score. And then early in the, in the third quarter, the quarterback, Ryan Walker, he runs for an 83-yard gain. Wow. And then that sets up another, that sets up the adjacent to Goo touchdown. So 24 to 24. And then Gar, you know, they're just, you know, they just – their running game was too much for them that day, but still, that was that was a great storyline for Capel. I mean, it just that game just shows you know how much they had, how much they had to overcome this season to get to to that point right there. Yeah. There were um, there are just a number of just absurd statistical performances just on this season that um you know that'll stick with me kind of looking uh, you know looking forward. I mean the work of Damian Martinez, the <laughs> running back in Louisville, who wire to wire led the area in rushing yards at least throughout the regular season. I think I mean granted like Louisville's playoff run ended in uh, the second round, and I just checked the updated rushing stats. Ollie Gordon with Euless Trinity is naturally number one because of what he did in the postseason, sure. especially heightened by that was it 450 yards or whatever he had against. <laughs> Allen. Yeah. And then um, number two is Owen Allen, the uh, that beastly running back for South Lake Carroll. And he just passed Martinez this past week. He has four, four yards. He has a lead now. So that just shows you the level that Damian Martinez yeah. was playing at, um, you know, leading up to the uh, up to the postseason. He finished the year with 2,010 rushing yards on just, uh, what, I guess 11 games played, 11, 12 games. Um, 30 touchdowns, eight and, you know, a little over eight and a half yards per carry. He averaged more than 180 yards per game, multiple 200 plus yard games to the point where it just kind of felt commonplace and it really was um, just to see the level that that Louisville offense was able to execute at really the ultimate kind of pick your poison type of offense because you have this battering ram of a running back and then you have these two you know college caliber wide receivers out wide with Isaiah Stevens and Armani Winfield oh and you got a you know a you know Boise State committed quarterback Taylor Green slinging the ball around and to see that offense be able to play to its paper and post some I mean some of the best numbers in program history 
history for an offense. And yeah, I mean, with Martinez, he was right at the heart of it, you know, and fittingly enough, he and Taylor Green wind up splitting the, uh, the offensive player of the year honor in, uh, in district six, six, a on the all district list. Um, and then what you had with like, with Lovejoy, and I mean, the, the oh, work yeah. that they did, we'll get to Lovejoy later on, you know, as far as just talking about some, t- some, uh, some playoff takeaways, but I mean, just a record setting year for that offense on all fronts. I mean, the job that RW Rucker did at quarterback, I mean, he finished his year, his final numbers for the season, 3,417 passing yards, 1,044 rushing yards and 59 total <laughs> touchdowns. And how about this? Three interceptions. Hmm, Three interceptions. This is a team that played to the regional final. Three interceptions on the year for Rucker. Just an outstanding season for him. His top receiver, Reed Westervelt, he had, I mean, he he finished as one of the, uh, his touchdown count on the year was like an all-time level mark. He um, he had 89 catches for 1,803 yards, 31 touchdowns receiving, which ranks, I believe Coach Ross put up on Twitter that it ranks seventh all-time in a single season in Texas high school football history. If you go off the website, site, uh, texashighschoolfootballhistory.com. 31 touchdowns would be sixth all time. So it's one of the other. Either way, it was an incredible year for yeah. Westerville. One of yep. the, uh, you know, when you think of like the big year that Marvin Mims had last year when he was named our all-area MVP, he had 32 receiving touchdowns <laughs> just to kind of put into context just how awesome Westervelt was. Um, so, yeah, that Lovejoy offense was, I mean, was just on a uh, on another level this season. Um, and the work that Garrett Nussmeyer did with Marcus on his way to a back-to-back MVP nod in District 6-6A, uh, 2,815 passing yards, 33 touchdowns, five interceptions. And this, I mean, above all those numbers, the fact that he completed 72% of his passes, because when you see quarterbacks complete over 70% of their passes at the high school level, it's typically more kind of a short-range passing attack, but, I mean, you saw Marcus. That's not how they roll. No, they're, I mean, deep. they're looking deep, man. Oh, yeah, they strike. Yeah, they, they, they strike deep in a heartbeat, so for the uh, the degree of difficulty on some of those throws that Nussmeyer was making pretty routinely throughout the season, to still complete that many, that uh, that high percentage, just impressive work on his part. It's a shame that, you know, things didn't get to end on his, uh, on the terms in which he would have liked, you know, injured in their uh, their uh, last game of the regular season and unable to play in their playoff game, but um yeah I mean just some great stuff statistically throughout the season um, when you look back on and um I don't know, did you guys have any more notes as far as some stuff that you guys will remember specifically from this season? Oh I, I could tell you what's going to be talked about for a long time in my local circles the nine six a pod system goodness um, <laughs> I mean you know everybody every district was. Um, Faced with the challenge on what they're going to do with, you know, potential postponements, cancellations, et cetera, et cetera. And every district basically came to their, you know, their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, 96A got a little bit creative by creating the two, you know, 14 pods, hoping that it wouldn't come to that, hoping mm-hmm. that they'd be able to get the uh, full district season in, uh, which that got thrown out the window pretty quick. <laughs> uh, you know, you look at Rowlett. Rowlett came in as a motivated team. They had their streak of 14 straight playoff appearances in last season. Mm. Okay, let's start a new streak. And, you know, they get hit with a positive case prior to their season opener. So they don't even play their first game till October 22nd. I mean, which just, you know, if you I just know. said, if we were talking about this, you know, this time last year, you're like, that's, seven, that's week seven, basically. <laughs> um, possibly week eight. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and they get off to a good start. They win their first three games, a huge win over rivalry, win over Saxe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by then, the pod system had kicked in, and the way they decided to do it was basically they're going to have their playoff games, play-in games, um, on November 13th. And so, Rowlett, 3-0, and uh, got the top seed. They get fourth-seeded Wiley, 
who just happened to get their starting quarterback uh, <laughs> back that week. And, and Wiley surprises them 30-27. to 27. So here it is. They played four games. It's the middle of November, and they're already out of the playoffs. And, you know, it's just it was just so bizarre. And it's just how do you keep, you know, how do you keep them motivated? How do you keep them going? Uh, you know, Rylett went on. They finished with a winning record. They were four and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, only played six games this season. But, you know, they're, you know, a month before the playoffs start, essentially, they're out of the playoffs, even though they should be right in the thick of things. And that was just the way Nysik say went. Um even down to the wire, Lake even Garland was supposed to play for a, that, a playoff berth that week. It got pushed back. It got pushed back. They're supposed to play the final week of the regular season. Lakeview has a positive case, so they have to basically cancel that game because yeah. the playoffs are about to start. Well, by virtue of the tiebreaker, Lakeview's the higher seed was going to go in, but they were still in quarantine. So then Garland gets the nod. So you look at the standings. You had three teams with winning records. One of them made the playoffs. <laughs> Lake, I named it for us. She won the district championship. Yet the other two teams with winning district records, Lakeview and Rowlett, mm-hmm. missed out. So it was just, you wonder if we're, I, and I hope we're not in a situation again in the fall, but we might be. But you might uh, think they might kind of, you know, redo how they think on this whole pod system or at least adjust some of the tiebreakers. Make a few revisions to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's um that's kind of a good way then to lead into just the inevitable when you think about this year above all else though it's going to start and finish with the pandemic because that was um that was what made this thing so unique from the get go I mean like I said back in the spring there was just so much uncertainty over just we, if we'd even get a season and to yep. what extent we would with all that goes into playing a game of football coupled with you know what the uh, the nature of the uh, of the coronavirus and to then see everything that kind of led up to this point from like you mentioned David the summer work outs the teams had to have and just the legwork that went into organizing those and just the attention to detail that all of our schools took and just planning out every last detail and the uh, the extra attention paid to you know sanitation and cleaning down your weights after use and you know everybody's got hand sanitizer stations and whatnot and just everything that these schools did all in the sake of, you know, trying to be able to guarantee that they would be able to play football in the fall. And then you just get to the actual week to week nuts and bolts of having to cover this stuff. Um, I just kind of want to look back on just what it was, what it was all like for us, because I mean, obviously it was very, very different in some ways. So um, yeah, I mean, David, what is, um, what's kind of be the, uh, just what was it like when you think back just in hindsight, just the week to week of having to cover, you know, the stuff during a pandemic? Um, obviously, you can get a, a text message or an email like three hours before the game and say, hey, it's going to be off. It's wild. And are seeing but, that with basketball nowadays. Yeah, yeah. You could just say, like, I just saw, like, you know, a tweet this morning that said this particular school is not going to be able to play this game, you know, on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think as far as, like, covering it, like, obviously, you know, like, when we st- like the first sport they were able to really cover is volleyball. Mm-hmm. Like we're in the gym with masks and we're having a social distancing and you're seeing hand sanitizer on the table. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a lot different than it was before, but I think like, you know, after the first three or four weeks, I think it just kind of got normal to mm-hmm. us. I think, you know, we're kind of used to it by then, you know, we knew that we were like six, six feet apart in the, from each other in the, in the, when we get in the press boxes for football, like there's like somebody who's usually like, like right here, like that chair has moved down further. Yeah. So, I mean, I think after a while, it just kind of felt normal. It just became second nature. It became second nature. Um, obviously, you know, like you kind of hope for the best for the kids right there mm-hmm. because, you know, that's, that's what they want to do. They want to play sports, you know, so, you know, th- that's, 
it's so good for you mentally right there to be able to play a sport. So I think, you know, just to – you just kind of hope that every team did, doesn't have to worry about, like, a cancellation or a COVID or having to worry about losing a season due to something. So, I mean, fortunately, like a lot of these teams, were able to navigate the season without, like, too much trouble. There was um, – you just imagine some of the anxiety that it had to cause for, like, a lot of coaches just throughout the week, just hoping that you don't get that phone call. And yeah. it's it's Wednesday, and, you you know, you get word that a game for Friday has been canceled and just the uh, you know kind of as the season went along just some of the week-to-week uncertainty because there were some schools that were able to navigate this thing scot-free like Plano West got in every game on its schedule mm-hmm. Flower Mound too um, you know but there was others that you know were not as fortunate obviously you mentioned the situ- situation over there in, uh, in 9-6-A with like with Rowlett and whatnot like poor Salina got to play just seven games during its regular season and I mean they had two times throughout the regular season where they had to take breaks of two, of two weeks and just the uh, just the the trouble that that can you know instill as far as developing a rhythm with that constant stop and start and you know you saw it hurt them in their uh, in their district opener when they had a really uneven performance against Aubrey wound up losing that game um, and then you know fortunately for Salinas case they were able to get the ship back on track and wound up going four rounds deep in the playoffs but I mean it was just so up and down leading up to that point just because when you I mean again yeah when you have games falling falling through you know every other week it just makes it's so difficult, and yeah, I mean, you saw some of that at the private school level with a school like Prestonwood, who had just a, a four and four record on the year, and they went two rounds deep in the playoffs. Um, you know, John Paul II played just five regular season games and two playoff games. And then with Prestonwood, I was just thinking back, like if you were to look at Prestonwood's schedule post realignment and the schedule that they actually wound up playing, it's like two completely different things. There was an instance where, just as an example, like in their second week of the season, prior to their district opener against Fort Worth All Saints, that game falls through. You know, they got to kick it down the road a little bit. So Prestonwood, they're trying to scramble to find a game to play. It's just the second week of the season, so you want to get something in for your kids. They they actually wind up scheduling Fort Worth Southwest in a game that I believe materialized either either the day of the game on Friday or the night before. So that's just the kind of timeline that a lot of these schools were working with in some of these circumstances, trying to find games when one falls through. And it was, um, you know, you look at the impact that it had on like District 66A, you know, with with uh, with Plano and, uh, and Hebron and them having to shut things down for two weeks in the middle of the season in a district that, you know, basically decided to, uh, they voted to determine their four playoff teams based on your total number of district wins. So to miss out on two district games that's massive as far as the impact on the uh, on the final district standing so we'll never know just how the schedule would have panned out if you get every game in you know you didn't get a you didn't get Plano Plano East this year which is you know in Plano I mean that's the most hallowed football game in all of Plano ISD athletics um, you know you feel for a team like Plano that wasn't able to really get a, a realistic chance to build off of its first win of the season over Hebron then having to shut things down for two weeks immediately after the fact Hebron who missed the playoff for the first time in quite some time and a year where they I mean seldom ever had their full personnel because you were just having to, you know, call up kids from all different levels and you had starters missing, you know, every other week and whatnot because of quarantines and contact tracing and just so much inconsistency. And then a team like Plano East, which was having to play JV kids late in the season because of how, you know, COVID hammered they were and, I don't know. It just it, it took again the toll that it took on each team was different, but it certainly tested the resolve of a lot of these programs as far as having to improvise and just find out different ways of doing business. And again, all with just kind of the looming uncertainty over whether or not you would even get to play your game on Friday. It was that was probably the part that just made it just so you know so difficult from my uh, from my perspective as far as just the lead up to the game. When you got to the game itself, then it felt like things more or less fell into place. There were some you know school district that handled things like 
like post game interviews differently than others and whatnot. But as far as the uh, the game the game coverage itself, you know, I think we all kind of settled into a pattern of normalcy there. But the lead up though was anything but uh, but commonplace. But I think I think in hindsight, if you just look back now, it's very surprising that we're at this point mm-hmm. heading into the final week with the full slate of games and just how few. Cancellations. I mean, it happened. There was forfeits, unfortunately, that happened in the playoffs, but not very many. Yeah. And, I mean, it's a credit to the football programs but for abiding by the protocols, you know, as much as they could. Um, but I think it didn't really hit home until like, these last couple of weeks. Because, you know, with volleyball, they got three, but they're on opposite sides of the court. Mm-hmm. And there's no post-game handshake. You know, they wave, good yeah. game. But they're not right there next to each other. You see it already in basketball. There's full contact, and already it's just been a wave of postponements and positive cases and contact tracing, um, you know, whether you talk about varsity, JV, freshman, on down to middle school. And so the fact that football with the full contact and with these guys being involved, you know, all around each other, the number, the sheer number of players that are on the field uh, during a given game, the fact that even though it did wreak havoc on the schedule at times, the fact that they were able to get through the playoffs, to get to the state championship games this week with as little interruption as possible without having to extend the date back mm-hmm. even further. I mean, that's, that's like I say, surprising, impressive, and, and it's a credit to those programs. I would – it's definitely a credit, but obviously we know that football is like it's being played outside. So obviously we don't have to worry about recycled air out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, you know, to have like you know eleven guys against eleven guys right there with like you know full body contact right there. I mean, it's and to have that many guys like you're having like fifty, sixty guys like not only like you know in the program every day. Mm-hmm. Like even if it's outside or in the field house, that's a lot of kids to have to worry about right there. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I went through to check, just curious as to how many games we did have that did have to be forfeited throughout the postseason in 6A and 5A. We had four games total in 6A and five and 5A across the D1 and D2 brackets, and I believe all those games were contained either the first or second round, so nothing from the regional semifinals on. So, yeah, I mean, it's because that's what you worry about is, like, at the start of the postseason, like, there's no way they're going to get through this without at least one of these teams, you know, somebody, if you get to the state quarterfinals and somebody has to crop up just because, you again, just the just you're playing just the odds and whatnot, and it just felt like it was such a low probability outcome that we would get to this point and yeah sure enough they um they've they somehow managed to navigate it and you know it doesn't feel like it you know impacted the uh, the competitive balance of the postseason doesn't feel like we're getting you know you know two random teams playing for state titles this week that otherwise wouldn't be there during a normal season it's it feels like just about what we might have you know expected more yeah. or less at the start of the season um so that's um then we can lead into, I guess, the uh, the last part of this, and I did want to just because uh, it has been, you know, some time since we were on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, obviously lots of playoff football has taken place since then. So, just want just to rehash some uh, some playoff takeaways, just some playoff storylines that um, you know, over these past a uh, few weeks since we all last spoke, um, just would have been some things that have kind of stood out as far as the way the playoffs have uh, have materialized. Um, you know, on my end, the uh, you know the two teams that went the deepest in our coverage area, um, loved. And prosper, and those were um, those were two fun uh, fun stories to follow. Um, you know, we talked about earlier Lovejoy and um, just some of the records that they were able to break with them with their offense, and just the collective result from this season. I mean, it was their deepest playoff run since 2010. They advanced to the state quarterfinals, and their um, their their 13 wins this year is a program record. And I mean, it's not just the fact that they were so successful, but that they looked the part. Yeah. And that was, um, as far as the best football game I got to cover this year, it was that uh, that state.
state quarterfinal with Lovejoy and Alito. And just to see a program like Alito, who's going for, what, their 10th state championship <laughs> this week. But the fact that Lovejoy looked every bit as good as Alito, and for large stretches of that game, even better. This is a game that Lovejoy led by 10 points in the fourth quarter. And then, you know, Alito was able to outscore them 24 to 10 the uh, the rest of the way but they got two touchdowns on special teams that's how this game swung because it was not because love you know Alito's defense mustered some heroic stop with the Lovejoy offense Lovejoy's offense did what they wanted to at will against Alito and that's to see that you know to see that offense translate against an opponent of that caliber was such an eye-opening uh, an eye-opening performance they had almost 600 yards of offense in that game I mean you look at all the D1 talent that Alito has R.W. Rucker was the best player in that game that <laughs> night. That's, I mean, he was just on fire. And Westervelt and Luke Mayfield, I mean, that offense could not be stopped. Again, it was just a couple special teams, you know, breaks that, uh, that Alito caught that swung this one in their favor. Um, I mean, Lovejoy's offense was just electric. You know, they averaged 50 and a half points for the season, 51 and a half for the playoffs. And I mean, just the, uh, the Chris Ross effect, man. I mean, it's, you know, we talked about before he got to Lovejoy, the work that he did at Red Oak, where he inherited a two win program that then he proceeds to lead to a combined record of 20 and four over the next two seasons. Um, so again, that's what he did inheriting a two win ball club. You see what he did. Now you give him a playoff caliber core, which is what he had at Lovejoy. Lovejoy is in the team that was falling on hard times. They made the playoffs last year, and they had a lot of those same pieces intact. You give him that kind of talent, though, and you see what he's able to accomplish in just one year. And, you know, you look at the uh, – we're talking about the pandemic and the impact that it had. I mean, you think in the off season, and, I mean – Chris Ross was hired not long before everything shut down, so he didn't get spring ball. He didn't get to go yeah. through a traditional offseason in that respect. So for them to still play as well as they did, for as many, you could have made all the excuses in the world at the start of the year as to why this thing could go south because of how weird the offseason was. No, they had their best season ever in some respects. Um, that was impressive. Prosper, man, it was such a uh, such a high-wire act following yeah. the Prosper team. They, uh, I mean, they finished in the same spot that they were last year in the regional final. Um, and they had an 8-4 and four record. I mean, three of those losses, one came on the last play of the game, and a uh, basically as time expired, a walk-off touchdown by Eli Stowers um, against Denton Geyer in district play. They lost that game 24-23. That w- another loss that they had, they lost by, uh, what was it, four points to Allen on mm-hmm. a game where Allen scored a touchdown with six seconds left to take a, a 35-31 lead. And then they had a loss to Geyer again in the playoffs in the regional finals. This one, though, a triple overtime game <laughs> that was 10-10 at the end of regulation, wound up being 30-24 to in favor of Geyer. And ironically enough, it happened to him again. Eli Towers with another uh, walk-off touchdown to send uh, to send Prosper packing. But, I mean, just a wild year for Prosper. They needed a win over McKinney Board in that last week of the regular season just to make it to the playoffs. And Boyd gave him hell. It was, a th- it was like 30 to 28 was the final score. Um, And then, you know, they got things rolling there in the postseason, kind of like Salina did. And, um, you know, just an elite defense, just 23 points per game allowed. A lot of that hinged on the play of a loaded senior class, especially in the middle middle there with uh, Aiden Ciano, Mason Jolly, Herman Lee, their linebackers. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it – 
in the playoffs, they allowed just 13.3 points per game. And, and this is, you know, in regulation, because again, mentioning that even they gave up 30 to Geyer, you know, what was it? Uh, what, 20 of those came in the overtimes. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I mean, that game with Geyer was there for the taking, you know, a lot like that first meeting was. I'm um, just going back through my uh, through my game story. Prosper had five trips inside the Geyer 15-yard line in that game in, uh, in regulation, and they had just 10 points total across those five drives. So, again, the chances were there. They had a couple interceptions that were thrown in the uh, in the red zone, and yeah, you just can't make those mistakes against a, a, a battle-tested program like Denton Geyer. But still, a great year for Prosper. I mean, the, the again, same the same result as last season as far as playoff advancement, but the road that they took each year to get there uh, completely different. Um, so at least that was it for me. Um, how about you, David? I remember sitting in the parking lot of Buddy Eccles Stadium. I just finished typing my uh, Flower Mound Capel story. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, uh, like that was the game for that Capel, you know, eventually clinched their playoff berth. And then I remember sitting in the parking lot, and I'm kind of looking up to see how the colony's doing. Mm-hmm. And then oh, to, yeah. to like the colony, they're in the situation like they're playing Frisco Reedy that night. And before that, they had like a two week shutdown because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So, and this is their final game. This is kind of their Super Bowl, and they actually still had a chance to get in the playoffs. So for them to get in the playoffs, they had to win by 17 points. Which they actually did. They hit that number straight on the mark right there, yep. 34 to 17. Um, and one of those touchdowns, they actually got an onside kick for a touchdown. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then Jonathan Roberson, their quarterback, you know, he had, the, he had this best game of the season, threw for, for, threw for over 270 yards and three touchdowns. And um, so they won that game 34 to 17. And then after the game, Coach Rudy Rangel, like he has to go back in somewhere like around Tommy Briggs Stadium to – Participate like in a point dark alley somewhere. Like, yeah. I don't know where, <laughs> but odd. like to, to to participate in a coin flip with yeah. uh, Independence Coach Kyle Story to see which team would make the playoffs. Yeah. Goodness. So they lost on a coin flip, and then I remember Coach Rangel called me as soon as like two minutes after I finished typing that game story for Capel. He goes like, "We lost." I'm like, "I'm like, I'm like, you lost a coin flip," and you could just tell the heartbreak <laughs> in his voice right there. His kids did everything that they could to win that yeah. game. I mean, the colony, you know, like like you know, they had a. Like, for as much turnovers they had this season, that was just like a heck of an effort that Rangel dealt with this team. Not only with the players, but also the coaching staff as well, too. New offensive coordinator, new defensive coordinator, completely different systems right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just felt so bad for the for, for those guys, man, because they worked their butts off to try to, you know, get a playoff berth right there. But, I mean, I mean they're, they're going to be – they'll have some good – pieces coming back next year so i mean that's uh, that's like that's one of the moments i'm definitely going to remember from this season right here um obviously you know capel making back into the playoffs right there especially with the addition you know of kj liggins coming back there mm-hmm. um so uh it, it was a good season overall uh so, and then obviously i got to cover some of the frisco teams this year too and lovejoy as well twice so uh, so i'm I, it, was a, it was a good year just considering everything that happened you got to see, and I haven't even had a chance to really pick your brain about it, but you got to see Allen's last game of the season. I did, yes. Against Euless Trinity in the regional semifinals, the uh, the historic Ollie Gordon <laughs> performance for Trinity. <laughs> I was curious, just if you could kind of just put me back in the uh, in the press box there at Globe Life. What was, um, I mean, what were your kind of your takeaways from uh, from that game? I mean, it was a game, obviously, that, you know, it, I mean, an expected shootout between two great offenses, you know, two very, very different stylistic offenses and whatnot. But, um, sure. yeah, what do you remember about that game as far as just kind of your takeaways? takeaways from it well i thought i thought even though ollie gordon was you know running like you know left and right all over allen's defense i mean allen was i think there are 10 points in this game as well yeah so i mean and like especially the first half i'm 
um, B- General Booty, their quarterback. I mean, you know, uh, U.S. Trinity is playing zone defense, and and like Booty likes like okay, like here we go, like just like every single window that he was throwing to, like he was just hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're up by ten points at halftime. And then, unfortunately, he had a couple ter- interceptions in the second half. Yeah. Uh, one of them that led to their go-ahead score by guess who? Ollie Gordon. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, uh, it was like it was a game there that was there for the taking. You know, they Allen like you know the way the game was going, you c- couldn't make any mistakes in the game. Unfortunately, Booty made uh, a couple interceptions. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one of them wasn't kind of really his fault. I think it was just like you know miscue with the receiver out right there. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, like like. I think actually the first one he threw to a linebacker out there. I think he's trying to throw to his left side, and it got intercepted by one of their linebackers. So I mean, just just a couple mistakes right there. But other than that, Booty played a great game. Any uh, any notable playoff takeaways on your end, Devin? You know, I didn't have quite the uh, representation yeah. um, that I've had in in, in recent years. Uh, you know, Lone Star and Frisco made nice runs to the regional semifinals. Uh, Sunnyvale back you know earlier being four A Division two made a. Uh, a nice run of the regional semifinals. Uh, but if I might dip into the private school ranks real quickly. In terms of things I'm going to take away from oh, this man, season. Oh, man, I just remembered how their season ended. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and, you know, we are – we're objective, you know. Yeah. We're not. We're not Gilmer. We're not some of these small schools that you know <laughs> are all rah the, rah high five and shots stuff. at the Gilmer Buckeyes. But yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of statewide. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, sometimes you just get you just see something that just even kind of hits you emotionally. And Dallas Christian, you know, I've gotten Dallas Christian. Those private schools, you know, a lot of times those kids go to school from. K through all the way up, mm-hmm. you know, depending on is. So you get to know the parents because they have multiple kids go through the school. And over the years, I've gotten to know some of the parents, some of the parents on that uh, on that Dallas Christian football team. And, and Dallas Christian is one of the most storied private school programs, you know, in state history. They have eight state championships, but none since 2008. Mm-hmm. And they've had some close calls. And then you thought this is the year that they get number nine. They've been dominant. They outscored their opponents 542 to 102 this season. Wow. Their closest game until the state championship game was 28 points. They just rolled right through everything. And then they play Austin Regents in the final. They dominate everywhere except on the scoreboard. They outgained them 444 to 184. Five trips into the red zone that came up empty. Uh. And so you think, well, that's frustrating, but we're going to overtime, keep it together. And then right before overtime, on the last play of the game, they decide to throw a pass. It's picked off and returned 69 yards for a touchdown as time expires. And Austin Regent walks off with the state championship. I've never heard of that happening. And, I mean, it just – I'm sitting there watching because I'm streaming it at the game stand in Waco. And I just – they panned over to that sideline. They panned over to the crowd. And and it was just – you just kind of saw the look on those players' faces. And it just went, wow. What a way for your season to end. What a way for your career to end. And that's something that's – I mean, I I won't forget for a long time. I mean, just that – just such a great season. But that one play is just kind of going to be the one one memory that's Mm going to be hard to shake. Uh, this wasn't even playoff related, but it just completely slipped my mind as far as notable takeaways from this season. This was honestly one of the most more surreal nights that I've had on the job in some time. I didn't even mention the McKinney North football game that was played at two stadiums no, in right. one night. Talk about just a, just I mean, this wasn't even pandemic related. It was their uh, I guess their uh, their 
second to last game of the regular season against Sherman, a game that you know carried weight as far as them uh, you know them getting to the playoffs and whatnot. But uh, I mean, yeah. So with um, you know for those who I can't remember if we even discussed this on the podcast prior, but um, yeah, I mean it was a game that was you know thirty-seven to thirty-five with two thirty left. You know North had just scored a touchdown and they're attempting an onside kick. Um, the kick goes out of bounds, and then as Sherman is going over to get the ball, bring their offense back out, the power in McKinney ISD Stadium completely <laughs> shuts down. And it's, I mean, again, we were so late in the game, so again, there's no alert as far as getting the power back on and anywhere, um, anywhere in the near sight. So they decide, you know, 30 minutes later that. We're just going to resume the game at Ron Poe Stadium. <laughs> this is about ten minutes up the uh, up the highway. So yeah, everybody, uh, you know, both teams boarded buses, and you know, fans got in their cars, and just about everybody drove on up to Ron Poe Stadium, which is the old McKinney ISD football venue. And um, yeah, sure enough, somehow, some way, they they played this game at two stadiums in one night. Sherman winds up winning the game, forty-four to uh, to thirty-five. It was uh, I mean, I don't know, just 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 the weird nature. Of again, yeah, like one game being played at two stadiums. I mean, we've seen games that have taken place, you know, in you know, in two days apart or whatever due to weather and whatnot. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I've just I've never heard of a game being played at two separate venues in the same night. And you know, you put that on social media, and it's just like the latest example of like, oh my god, like these people in Texas are insane. Like they'll do anything to play their high school football. And I mean, yeah, just um, just another uh, little, just another little little addendum to just everything that goes into Texas high school football and just the passion that uh, this game has around these parts. But but uh, yeah, that was a that was a pretty uh, pretty wild night on the uh, on the job. Um, let's see, was there um, did I have anything else? Um, I don't think I did. Um, you know, as far as you know, us in general, you know, right now, I mean, again, this kind of closes the book on uh, on high school football in our coverage area. Was it, were any of y'all surprised at the results over the weekend in the state semifinals? Even though uh, outside of our coverage area, I know I felt like all throughout the year, everyone had kind of just penciled in round three between Duncanville and uh, and North Shore for the state championship. And uh, I think it's kind of insulting to say surprise because I mean, you're talking about two. Westlake and Southlake Carroll, two teams with pedigrees that yeah, uh, yeah. are right up there with those. I mean, if not exceeding the, those two teams when you look at history. Um, I just think people thought that because the, the preseason rankings and rankings are rankings. I yeah. mean, that's it doesn't tell the entire story. But, yeah, just based on the fact that these two teams had met in recent years. But, I mean, it took two really great games. I know. To, to, um, to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Again, to say there were upsets I don't think is fair. Um but yeah, and we have the dodgeball, and like David <laughs> talked about before, yeah. this was uh, four months in waiting since it was supposed to be the preseason, mm-hmm. the, the first game, week of the mm-hmm. season. I would only say surprise because Riley Dodge wasn't on the sidelines on Saturday. Yeah, because like he had, he got unfortunately tested positive for yes. COVID. Having a quarantine. Yeah. So yeah, I, like but obviously as you saw last night, you don't need like your head coach on the sideline yeah. with <laughs> the Cleveland Browns. So don't care. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and obviously you know like. I mean, Denton Ryan, like, that's not a surprise at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. Denton Ryan getting there, I think that was the uh, the writing was on the wall that if there was ever a year for it to happen, then this was going to be it. I did see their game against uh, against Highland Park, and I guess that would have been the, what, the regional semifinals. And it was, I mean, it was it was a 17-7 ball game with nobody scoring in the second half. And, I mean, it was one that was, you know, there were chances Highland Park had to put a scare in them. I mean, Denton Ryan was turning the ball over pretty free and easy in the uh, over those last couple 
couple quarters, but Ryan's defense was just outstanding. Um, yeah, now Denton Ryan being there, again, like if we said you know, during the regular season, if not this year, then when for that group with yeah. everything that they've got with that loaded senior class. And, I mean, just it's been building to this moment for some time with as close as they've been. And uh, what is it, uh, Cedar Park that they have mm-hmm. coming up this week? Um, so, yeah, we'll see if Denton Ryan out of District 5, 5A Division One can uh, can get over the hump. Um, so, yeah, as far as us, um, you know, next week then we will uh, we will vote on our all-area team. Always a, a fun a fun time getting to put that together. I'm curious to see the uh, the discussions that come out of this, like who we decide to give MVP to, all, all the way down to which assistant coach we decide for our, uh, our Billy Whitman assistant coach of the year. It's um, always some spirited discussion when it comes to assembling the all-area team. This will be your first time getting to participate in that, David. Um, so it should be a, a good time, and that will, I guess, be I guess the official sign-off for um, our football coverage for the uh, for the season. So, um, yeah, guys, I don't know. That's all I had. So that's just kind of a uh, just a nice little tidy summation of the uh, an all too unique year mm-hmm. on the uh, on the job covering Texas high school football. And uh, you know, twenty twenty one has a has a lot to live up to in that respect. Hopefully, it doesn't. <laughs> it's given everything. In some that ways, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, given everything that happened this year. So, um, so yeah, we'll be back uh, next week, and I guess we'll uh, we'll start to start talking some uh, some basketball. My favorite time of year. Love talking high school basketball. So uh, until then, folks, you take care. We will talk to you all later. Looking to hire top talent in your community? Look no further than StarLocalJobs.com. Our platform is specifically designed to connect local employers with qualified candidates in their area. With StarLocalJobs.com, you can easily post job listings tailored to your specific needs and requirements. Our platform is user-friendly and offers a wide range of options to help you find the perfect candidate for your open position. Plus, our job matching algorithm ensures that your listing is shown to the most relevant job seekers in your area. But that's not all, StarLocalJobs.com also offers a variety of resources to help you throughout the hiring process. From candidate screening to interview tips, our team of experts is dedicated to helping you find the right fit for your company. So why wait? Join the thousands of satisfied employers who have found their ideal candidate through StarLocalJobs.com. Post your job listing today and start building your dream team.